Well, the 1999 St. Louis Rams football team was really excited for their upcoming season. Uh, they'd had a really rough 1998 season. And so they knew they had some really good wide receivers. And so they wanted a really good quarterback to put with them. And so they went out on the, the free agent market and they signed Trent Green to a hefty contract. Trent was considered one of the greatest quarterbacks at that time in the league. And so St. Louis had high, high hopes. But then in preseason game three against the San Diego Chargers, Trent Green was sacked and his ACL was torn and he was going to be out for the remainder of the year, which caused many in the media, many fans, and even some of the St. Louis Rams coaches themselves to say, great, that's it. The season's over. Now, you'd probably wonder like, well, okay, so why is knocking out one player like just ruin your whole season? Well, first of all, it's because they really thought Trent Green was going to lead them to the playoffs, possibly even to the Super Bowl. But they also had no faith in their backup quarterback. You, you got to realize that most guys in the NFL, even the backups, like come from top tier colleges. They still get drafted and, and then they're, they're sit behind the, 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 the star quarterback, but they're ready to go. The St. Louis Rams quarterback was 27. He wasn't like some fresh 23-year-old ready and eager to learn. No, he couldn't even get drafted out of college. He barely gets into the NFL at age 26, and he only gets into just a few games. He threw a total of 11 passes and only completed four. In fact, in 1999, the NFL had an expansion draft. They were adding a couple teams into the league, and so the, all of the other teams could only protect so many players. The Rams did not try to protect this backup quarterback, and yet he didn't get drafted. Like, no, no one wanted this guy. And yet, to this day, Trent Green, who, by the way, recovered from his ACL injury and went on to have a fantastic NFL career, Trent Green is not in the Hall of Fame. But that backup quarterback, who you might know as Iowa native Kurt Warner, is in the Hall of Fame. You see, Kurt went on to lead that 1999 uh, St. Louis Rams team not only to the Super Bowl, but they won, where they defeated the Tennessee Titans, who had beaten them earlier in the season. St. Louis only lost three games the entire year, one of those to Tennessee, and then they beat them in the Super Bowl to claim the championship. And not only was Kurt Warner leading them, he ends up being named the MVP for the Super Bowl and the MVP for the entire year. Sports Illustrated had a cover featuring Kurt Warner saying, who is this guy? He went on to set all sorts of NFL records, led the team back to the Super Bowl, led the Arizona Cardinals a few years later to the Super Bowl, and is now in the Hall of Fame. It's considered one of the greatest Cinderella stories in all of professional football, possibly in all of sports. We love Kurt Warner stories. We absolutely love hearing about the rags to riches, out of nowhere, against the odds type of story. I mean, Hollywood puts these stories on the big screen and takes our money every single year. We love these. And yet, when we meet someone in the midst of that story, we don't believe the story. It, when we meet someone or we hear about something and it seems really small, insignificant, kind of unwanted, we just envision it will always be small and insignificant and unwanted. In other words, if we met Kurt Warner before he started playing for the St. Louis Rams, we kind of look at him too and go, yeah, this guy's never making it to the Hall of Fame. He's probably not even going to make it into the NFL. 
We're just like everyone else. We reject the Kurt Warners in the middle of a story. But God does not reject Kurt Warners. In fact, God throughout all of history has been writing Kurt Warner stories. And today, as we get into Mark chapter 4, we're going to hear Jesus tell a parable that lets us in on the secret. That God delights in taking that which looks small, unwanted, unknown, even rejected, and he suddenly turns it into something big and bright and beautiful and impossible to ignore. And my hope today is that as you hear this, it will not only help you get a glimpse of the kingdom of God and just how big and bright and beautiful and impossible to ignore it is, but that you'll also realize that God can take your life and make it into something that's impossible to ignore. So if you brought a Bible, would you go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 4. If you're a first-time guest with us and you don't have a Bible, I'm going to have the scripture up on the screen for you, but uh, we encourage you, get a, either a paper copy in your hand or at Riverwood, we are fine with digital copies. So if you're here at Drosty, you probably notice some people pulling out their phones. If you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel fr free to use that and navigate to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses uh, 30, well, I'm going to read verses 30 through 34, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time in 30 through 32. So let me read Mark 4. 30 through 34. And he, Jesus, said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. I remember many years ago hearing a biblical critic and skeptic use this very parable as proof that the Bible was not reliable, that it was filled with errors, and it was, it was kind of proof in his mind that there really was no God and, and this whole thing is a, a big farce. Because what you just heard Jesus say in his parable is that there's this seed, a mustard seed, and it's the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And then that seed grows and it sounds like a tree. You know, these large branches, birds nesting in it. And this critic pointed out that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed on earth, that there are, are several other seeds that are actually smaller, and, and that it does not grow into a tree. It, it kind of is a spindly kind of plant, and, and birds could land on it, but they definitely could not nest in it. Thus proof that, that either if Jesus really told the story, he was not all-knowing, or this whole thing is just filled with errors. Well, you might be surprised to hear me say this, but the, the critic was actually right, and yet wrong at the same time. You see, the critic kind of failed to put things into context. If you look at what Mark is doing there, this is the fourth of four parables that he includes in Mark chapter 4. Of the previous three, two of them are about farming. So we've got seed, we've got soil. And so when Mark starts talking about this parable that Jesus tells about the seed, you've got to put it in context. He's not trying to talk about the total totality of biology. He's talking about farming of crops. Now, some people considered mustard a weed, but there were some who actually tried to use it and cultivate it to make it into a spice. And so what they did was they would take this and notice Jesus said they sow the seed. That means there is intentional planting. And the people would know the mustard seed is so small, it would be easy to overlook. And yet, 
when you put it in the ground, compared to the other crops that they could grow, it grows to become one of the largest plants. The average mustard seed plant grows to about four feet. That's usually when you start to harvest. But black mustard could grow to about eight to 12 feet. Some even as large as 15 feet tall. And when they grow together, it becomes like a bush. And guess what? Birds can actually nest in it. The, the critic didn't realize that when you start comparing this, these things, what Jesus is doing is actually accurate. But the critic also re, didn't realize a couple other things. Jesus is doing two intentional teaching techniques in this parable. The first technique he uses is called hyperbole. It's where you stretch and exaggerate the point in a way that your audience knows you're exaggerating, but the purpose is to draw a particular emphasis to it. And so Jesus' audience would not be sitting there going, whoa, uh, wait, time out, Jesus. Uh, the mustard seed's not the smallest. I mean, the, the orchid seed is actually a little tinier. No, they would be listening to him going, oh, okay, I, I hear you. Small little seed. Yeah, the mustard seed's really small. Oh, but you're right. When it grows, it is bigger than most of the others. And they would be thinking, this is absolute brilliant teaching. But remember, Jesus here is teaching a parable. He's not really trying to teach biology. He's not really talking about a mustard seed. What is it he's talking about? It's right there in verse 30. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? There it is. He's talking about the kingdom. Of what parable shall we use for it? Last week, we, as we looked at the previous parable of the growing seed, we saw that Jesus' pet topic is the kingdom of God. Like, everything Jesus taught was really about the kingdom. Everything Jesus did was to present the kingdom or invite people into the kingdom. Like, this is what is heavy on Jesus' heart. He knows that what people need is the kingdom of God. And so everything he does is about it. So he's like, okay, I want my audience to understand something else about it. I just talked about it with the growing seed, but let's do another parable. I know Let's talk about a mustard seed. And let me use a little bit of hyperbole to stretch this here to help them capture the truth of it. And what is that truth that he wants to convey? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. Basically, he's trying to say the kingdom of God starts small. It starts insignificant. It's something that would be easy to overlook, but it is and will become something that's impossible to ignore. A, a little bit like Kurt Warner's uh, career. When he began, no one took him seriously. He was, he was a nobody. And yet now he's in the Hall of Fame, and all sorts of people know his name. He's impossible to ignore. This is what Jesus is trying to get across about his kingdom. That it may look small and insignificant, but God delights in doing something where people can't help but take notice. But Jesus' audience, they should not have been surprised at all by this. Because as Jews, they would know the Old Testament scriptures. For them, it wasn't the Old Testament. It was just the Testament, the scriptures, the, the holy, holy word of God. And all throughout it, they could see this, these Kurt Warner stories throughout. I mean, first of all, just them as Jewish people. They were not the most powerful nation. They weren't the biggest. And yet God selects them and saying, through you, you will be a blessing to the entire world. 
we could go to Gideon. Gideon was an Israelite man who was afraid of the Midianites. The Midianites were these, these, these bullies who came in and knocked over all the crops, ruining everything for the Israelite people, trying to starve them out. And so Gideon gets some wheat and he goes into a cave where he starts to thresh and thrash it, trying to, to make it so they can get the grain and make some bread just so they can survive. But what you have to understand is the way to process wheat was you had to throw it in the air and let the chaff, the, the, the really, really small stuff, get blown away. But if you're hiding in a cave, you're not going to get that wind. So in other words, he's going to make really, really bad bread, but that's how desperate he is. He's scared of the Midianites. And yet God shows up, sends an angel and says, Hail, mighty warrior. He takes that which looks small, insignificant, and suddenly uses him, Gideon, to lead an army. Oh, and by the way, God whittled the army down to 300 people to go and fight against 10,000 Midianites. And yet they win because God sent confusion in. The Midianites end up fighting each other and fleeing. And Israel proclaims the victory. And it was clearly God, that God did it. God takes that which seems small and insignificant and makes it something that's impossible to ignore. Or you could take Esther. Esther was just a common Jewish girl. But God had made her incredibly beautiful, attractive, so that when the king was looking for a new queen, he ends up seeing this pretty Jewish girl and selects her. But that was so that God could put her into a place so that when enemies of the Jews tried to commit genocide and wipe them out, she was in place to protect the Jewish people. Or you could take ne Nehemiah. He was the cupbearer to the king. Basically, his whole role was to drink the wine before the king, make sure it wasn't poisoned. And if he could live, then the king would probably be okay too. He was insignificant. And yet, God uses him to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls that had been knocked down, and they rebuilt them in only 52 days. God took that which seems insignificant and did something amazing through it. Or you take King David. David was the youngest of all of Jesse's sons. Like, the oldest is the kind of person who you expect to be king. Maybe the second, not the seventh. And yet God uses this overlooked kid to become the greatest king that Israel ever had. In fact, as a 14-year-old shepherd boy, when he would be easily overlooked, he walks down onto a battlefield wearing no armor, carrying only a sling and a stone, and defeats a giant who's wearing his full armor who had defeated many people. God took that which looked insignificant and did something tremendous through it. But probably the best example of all is God himself, God the Son, Jesus, sent to earth and allowed himself to be born to an unwed virgin. She was a complete unknown. Allowed himself to be put into a feeding trough, a manger in the small town of Bethlehem. Allowed himself to be raised by a poor carpenter in the disrespected community of Nazareth. He did not go through the traditional schooling like other rabbis. And yet, he calls these men to be disciples. Oh, and by the way, they were kind of the rejects themselves. They were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. They were not the best of the best. And then, as the ultimate insult, Jesus was mocked and ignored and eventually dismissed through being crucified on a cross. And yet, despite that small, mustard seed, insignificant beginning, there are now millions of people around the world who proclaim to follow Jesus. This is the pattern. This is the story. God is writing Kurt Warner stories throughout history, and he's doing it 
in his kingdom. But if you remember, I said that there were two things that Jesus was doing in this parable. The first was using hyperbole to make this point about the kingdom. But there's something else going on. It's down there in verse 32. If you notice, I only read the first half of 32. The second half says that after he talks about these large plants, they put out the large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, this is not just a nice little poetic device that Jesus tacks on here to make the the story sound kind of good. His Jewish listeners would know exactly what he's doing. Because you see, all throughout the Old Testament, God had been promising the Jewish people a place to rest, a place to nest, a place to dwell. Let me give you one example. Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. All right, so he's saying, I'm going to start with something really small. I'm going to go to the cedar. I'm going to take off a little twig, and I'm going up on top of the mountain. And on the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. So that which is small and insignificant, God is going to raise up and grow it into something that can't be ignored. Now listen to what he says. And under it, under the cedar, will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. God is communicating that these Jewish people who have gone through so much unrest, they have been conquered by so many people, taken into exile, that that even as Jesus is teaching his parable, they're underneath Roman rule. And God keeps promising them, I will bring you rest. I will bring you a place to nest, a place to dwell. And Jesus is communicating through his parable that that place is the kingdom of God. The Jewish people had been spending so much time looking for that place in land, the promised land. This is our land. They were thinking physical, but God had something bigger. He was thinking spiritual, and it's his kingdom. That is why Jesus is inviting people, presenting the kingdom of God to them, to say, come in, because it's here where you will find rest. So I think there are several things that we can take away from this parable. The first thing that I think we should take away is that this kingdom of God, it cannot be stopped. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Yes, there are some people, like that biblical critic I talked about just a little while ago, who sees the kingdom as insignificant. There are atheistic regimes around the world that are trying to keep the kingdom of God out of its borders. You, you might have work peers or school peers who kind of mock your faith. They, they, they see the kingdom of God as like, it, it, this is nothing. And yet, even though they think about it, it can't be stopped. Like, there are atheistic countries that have tried to stop the spread of Christianity, and they can't. Actually, the more persecution that happens against the church, the more the church thrives and spreads, and revival happens. It can't be stopped. And so that means that if you are a Jesus follower, this should actually encourage you. This should give you hope. Because right now we live in a world where people are arguing about masks, 
They're arguing about race. They're arguing about whether kids should be going back to school or not. They're arguing about whether we should be actually be holding sports. Our world right now is arguing about so much. And yet, the kingdom of God is going to advance. Like, th- this coronavirus cannot stop people learning about Jesus' love for them. This, this fight about race is not going to stop all nations, tribes, tongues coming to the throne of God. Like there's nothing that our political leaders can do that are going to stop people from hearing about the gospel. So you should actually be encouraged. Rather than being full of angst and upset because of what's happening in our world, you need to be reminded today, God is sovereign, he's in control, and his kingdom, which is not about a physical kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom, can enter into the hearts and lives of people, and they can be changed through the gospel. The second thing that I think we could take from this is that if you follow Jesus, you are part of this amazing kingdom. Which means your life matters. You have significance. Yes, this parable, it's about a kingdom. But as we've just seen, what God is doing through his kingdom, he's done in the lives of people. Whether it was Esther or David or Nehemiah or or whoever. And God can do the same in you. Your life matters. Now some people, when they hear that, they immediately start thinking of, of the, the grandeur, the, the, the fame. They, they think about getting big. Now, that, that mustard seed did not think about, I'm going to get to 12 feet tall. Now, that, that mustard seed was just merely focused on getting its roots down into the dirt to get the nutrients, to get the, the, the water, the, the moisture, so that it can grow. When Kurt Warner finally got into the NFL as a 26-year-old, He was not thinking, I'm going to get to the Hall of Fame. He's merely thinking, I want to be the best I can on this play. I'm going to be the best I can at practice. I'm going to be the best I can in the game. So for you, just focus on the gospel. Focus on the kingdom. Get your roots into the scriptures. Think about and pray and thank God for the cross and the empty grave. Let this gospel identify who you are. Let your union with Christ be everything. Because your life matters. You are significant. The third thing that I think we uh, could take from this is that true rest is found in the shadow of the kingdom. True rest is found in the shadow of the kingdom. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we live in very unrestful days. I mean, r- right now, we've got uh, a, a bunch of people who, you know, Iowa's not as closed down, but that many of our, our neighbors, friends in the U.S., that their states are, are shutting things down, so they're, they're stuck at home. We've got all this cultural arguing happening over the airwaves and on our social media. It, it's been really disrupting for many of us to see the racial divisions that exist. And then there are things happening on the political landscape that are really, really disrupting. And, and that's just what's happening on a national level. This doesn't even get down into our personal lives. I mean, some of you, you might be struggling in your marriage or in a significant relationship. There's contention there. Some of you, you've lost a loved one this year. Some of you, you're facing your own health crisis. Some of you, you're, you're going through a big change right now. And these things are unsettling. And when we feel unsettled, when we feel anxious, when we feel like there's this internal chaos, we look for rest. 
It's just that for many of us, we look for rest in Netflix. We look for it in chocolate. We look for it in ice cream. Ice cream does help. <laughs> but not as much as I wish it would. We, we, we look for rest in alcohol. We, we look for rest in people. We look for rest in new toys, things we can buy. We, we look for rest in our, our video games. We look for rest in our addictions. We look for rest in all these places. And many of them are good things. But it's not where we're going to find that ultimate, true, deep rest. Many of you know that I just came back from a two-month sabbatical. And before it, I'd been sharing with many of you that I just was deeply tired. I've been at this planting of Riverwood for over almost 12 years now. And I was tired. And I'm so thankful that through God's grace, I turned off Twitter, I stayed away from the news headlines, and I rested. And I spent time just looking into the cross and the empty grave. And it brought rest. I'm coming back refreshed. And I want you to experience the same. There is so much going on in the world right now. And the typical ways we try to find rest are not going to work They'll work on the short term, but I want you to have that long term. And so if you're a Jesus follower, you need to go back to the gospel because the gospel is your entrance into the kingdom of God. And to find that rest in this kingdom, it means you look and you see just how much God loves you by looking at the cross. You see just how powerful God is by seeing the empty grave. And when you remember how much God loves you and how powerful he is, how his kingdom will not be stopped, how he reigns, it will bring you rest. It, it won't change the fact that you have cancer. It won't change the fact that maybe you have this difficult relationship. It won't suddenly give you a job or change the financial situation you're in. But you can have a peace that surpasses understanding. And it is found in Christ. Which leads me to my fourth point. That if you're listening to this, whether you're, you're here at Drosty or you're watching online, if you are not a follower of Jesus yet, I, I invite you into the kingdom. I, I invite you to let that mustard seed of the gospel be planted in your life and let God grow it. Last week as we looked at this parable of the growing seed, we saw and discovered that God is in charge of our growth. I want to see you grow spiritually, emotionally. I don't want you just chasing after the American dream. I want you chasing after a God-sized dream because what this world needs right now is not just more people who are able to buy a nice big three-bedroom, four-bedroom house, drive a nice car, have a good job, and have a good name. No, what this world needs right now is people who will go out and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Our world is hurting, and we need you. And so will you give your life to this cause? Will you realize Jesus died on a cross for you? He loves you. And any of the things that you have done that you think would make God not love you, he's paid for. The penalty of sin is death. But Jesus went and paid that penalty for you. So the, the penalty's been washed away. You don't have to go and pay off the bad you've done. You can come right now and follow Jesus. Most people, when their, their eyes and hearts are open to this truth, they, they express that moment in prayer. And so if you would, would you just pray with me? 
So, Heavenly Father, I just pray for anyone who's, who's right here in, in uh, Drosty Hall at the, the fairgrounds or is watching online, and they sense that you love them and that you are bringing them into the kingdom. And so, God, would you hear their prayer right now as they express to you, as they confess that they are sinners, that that, that sin has kept them separated from you, and yet they now realize that that sin is forgiven. It is washed away, and you do not hold it against them at all. God, I just thank you now for my new brothers and sisters in Christ. And I thank you for the work, the story you're going to be writing in them. That they may not go on and have a Hall of Fame career in the eyes of the world. That they could go on and have a Hall of Fame career in your eyes. That you can take their small life, their beautiful life, and you can do something amazing through it. And God, I just pray for all of us. That, that we would realize that before you're going to do a great work through us, you want to do a great work in us. And so you'd help each and every one of us just come to a place of surrender, that we'd come back to before your throne, that we'd, we'd bow before the cross, and we'd realize Jesus was crucified for our sins. So our sins have been washed away, they've been paid for, and we are now free, and we come back into a relationship with you, that we have union with our Heavenly Father. And that that would encourage us and that would spur us on towards love and good deeds. That we would go and make a difference in this world, loving like Jesus loved and living like Jesus lived. So God, do this work in us right now as we pray, as we sing, as we partake of communion, that in this next holy moment, you would do in our hearts and our minds what you need to do so that we can become the people that you want to use for your glory and to make a difference in this world. In Jesus' name I pray.